At this point, Sylvester was sure it was a boil. Until four days ago, whether or not it might be a goiter was up for debate. But the particular pulsing and hotness he now felt on his neck, about five inches below his left ear, practically screamed, Lance me. And it was with a twinge of morbid excitement that he searched through his rusty tool chest for a utility knife, and hopefully, though not necessarily, a pack of new blades. He was a large, squat, and constantly aggravated old man. He had no family anymore, and certainly no friends, and had inherited the building from his father, an even more aggravated old man who had died one day in an oily blue recliner with his dick in one hand and a copy of Ladies' Home Journal in the other. Sylvester's mother had left when he was three, by his father's account, to pursue her lifelong dream of becoming an even bigger twat than she already was. That the building remained lovely in their custody was due to the fact that Sylvester, as had his father before him, confined himself almost exclusively to the small attic apartment above the second floor, venturing out only to buy groceries from McHenry Food and Liquors, which was open 24 hours a day. He let out the remaining apartments by running anonymous ads in the Tribune, in response to which applicants slipped their information under his front door. Acceptances were made over the phone, and rent was due on the first, no exceptions. Not that anyone who had heard his crusty voice on the other end of the line would have dreamt of testing the old man who told them, you don't even want to know what's going to happen if I don't see that rent on day one. Repairs and other tenant concerns were made and met by the frail-aged janitor who had, to the best of Sylvester's knowledge, been born of a can of turpentine and a sack of snow salt in the basement and had lived there ever since without complaint. Sylvester, never having thought to ask his real name, called him Jackass, just as his father had always done when buzzing him on the ancient intercom that connected the two dwelling spaces at the Greystones' top and bottom. The boil had been pulsating wildly, trying to burst the outer layer of skin that contained him. He was obsessed with escaping the company of the man whose neck he'd had the misfortune of inhabiting for slightly more than three months. A handsome growth by dermatological standards, the boil, whose God-given name was Barry, had spent the last 105 days in disgust at the squalor of Sylvester's apartment and the smell of his copious folds of skin. The rare treat of a bath was unfailingly ruined by having to watch Sylvester masturbate, and all night, every night, he was pressed mercilessly against a flattened yellow pillow, the odor of which defied description. Unfortunately, the environment had exacerbated Sylvester's condition, prolonging Barry's lifespan nearly three times beyond normal. He had grown to amazing proportions, watered by brown beads of sweat and sunned in the terrifying glare from Sylvester's massive balding head. The anatomy of a boil is circular, red, and painful. Pustules, they begin when bacteria breed infection at the root of a follicle and work their way up an unfortunate strand of hair to erupt at the skin's surface. Where any of the viscous liquid, rife with cellular debris, bits of tissue, and contagion, to escape and spread, yellowy white and thick, to other bits of skin, the boil would be able to reproduce. Were the journey to lead into the bloodstream, the infection could run willy-nilly throughout the body. There'd be no telling where it would eventually disembark. But while on a cellular level, Barry may have felt driven to conquer other regions of the vast landscape of Sylvester, conceptually, he just couldn't wrap his head around the idea. And in a genus of skin lesions that generally takes no interest in a higher power, Barry was uncommon in his fixation on an afterlife, or at very least, the possibility of reincarnation. So staunch in his belief was he that life on this particular neck could not be all that there was. He imagined the sights he would see stationed in the armpit of a lovely young French woman, or on the buttock of a high seas explorer. 
what he wouldn't give to infect the sinewy neck of a military man, or if he must be the parasite of a shut-in, at least one that had a cleaning lady come in from time to time. This is to say nothing of the splendors that might await him in boil heaven, if only he could get there. Sylvester rifled through the dusty, corroded box with one hand and scratched at his itchy, swelling neck with the other. He had a vague memory of using the yellow plastic carpet cutter to open a bag of potato chips about a week earlier, and could have sworn he had replaced it to its rightful spot promptly after using it. However, even the most cursory glance around his apartment would prove that Sylvester never replaced anything to its rightful spot promptly or at all. It was filled with decades of belongings, found in the vacated apartments of his tenants, dragged in from the alley, left there by his father before him. There were countless chairs of various styles and states of disrepair, tables of all shapes and sizes, a hodgepodge of cabinets and hutches. On top of these was an igneous layer of spilt coffee and beer, ashes, crumbs, and soaked napkins. Then came the sedimentary crusts of clippings and papers, bills and junk mail, magazines and circulars, a loose veneer on top, packed in plastic at the bottom. On the surface of any one of these layers lived enough staphylococcus to have initiated the boil that he now sought to incise. Frustrated, Sylvester suspended his search for the knife to retune the old cracked radio that provided his only company. It was a massive brown thing that had been in the apartment on the same dusty side table since he was a boy. The illuminated blue dial not only marked the AM stations from 55 to 160, but announced that the five-tube beast had been made by Admiral. It was, in fact, made by Mr. Ross D. Siragusa, who founded the Admiral Corporation in a garage not unlike Sylvester's own on the northwest side of Chicago in 1932. The son of Italian immigrants and a millionaire by his 21st year, he had lost a fortune made from the sale of electronic storage batteries in the stock market crash of 1929. But Siragusa avoided the soup lines and remade his fortune in radios, building them in a brick garage by night and selling them to drug and jewelry stores by day. Sylvester's Admiral, a Bakelite tabletop model with a self-changing phonograph, appeared in the apartment with a stack of story albums one day in his 11th year. His father had not told him that it had come from a tenant who owed several months' rent, and young Sylvester had delicately harbored the unlikely notion that perhaps his mother had sent it for him. This secret romantic conception long since forgotten, he gripped the knobs roughly with his thick fingers and adjusted them until he found the paranormal talk radio program. Then he sat in his father's recliner and listened to his favorite, stories about ghosts and UFOs. In five minutes, he was asleep, confounding the desperately throbbing cyst that had minutes before looked forward to release. Disappointed, Barry looked around the apartment and wondered if resourceful archaeologists able to make their way past the forgotten sandwiches and discarded periodicals might locate a layer of happiness somewhere in the rubble. Situated as he was, he was privy to the occasional errant thoughts that escaped from Sylvester's considerable head. Most often, they were no more than random spits and sputters, single words, food, shit, sleep, followed by Sylvester's immediate fulfillment of the impulse. But Barry had noticed that when Sylvester sat next to the Admiral, to listen to ghost stories or one of the scratch 78s in the staggered stack by his chair, the transmission was different. And as he slept now in the aural glow of the haunted radio, Barry swore he sensed, wish, remember, forgotten. Barry wondered where this giant's mother had gone, if she had thought about her husband and child when she got there, if she had ever returned and stood outside the building, simultaneously hoping and scared to catch a glimpse of them, or if she had simply left and forgotten them quickly. Sylvester snorted and ground his teeth in his sleep. 
Barry began to throb again and thought about how his own life could have been better under different circumstances. He was, after all, a highly perceptive sore, swift to understand his surroundings and exceedingly critical of his host. Many were the times he had attempted to contact Sylvester telepathically, desperate to engage the innate mental powers he had heard tell of on the nightly transmissions from Sylvester's evening radio programs. They both listened intently, or so it seemed, to one affected host after another telling stories of the unknown. Barry knew it must be possible for him to communicate. But Sylvester merely stared blankly into space. Barry had begun life as hopeful as anyone, with youthful enthusiasm and a head full of dreams. Get up, let's go someplace, he had screamed, and was excited the first time that Sylvester arose, seeming to sense his impatient urgings. Their first trip to McHenry's had been interesting enough. Barry had thrilled to the open air of the boulevard and tried frantically to take in everything they encountered in the two and a half blocks between their building and the small corner store. He had delighted at the seemingly hundred-year-old clerk and her 18-inch beehive. He had taken in the musty odor of the beer aisle and been excited by the curtain back section filled with pornographic videos and magazines of scantily clad women. Had he only known that the trip would be identical each time that they made it, or that this particular journey was the only one that ever led Sylvester from the apartment, he would have tried to save something for later. As it was, Barry sucked the life out of the excursion by their second trip, and now he dreaded it as he did all of Sylvester's monotonous domestic engagements. Sylvester was a creature of habit, and the boredom was killing Barry. Well, if only... Sylvester produced an exceptionally robust gurgle and woke himself up. He rose laboriously from the chair, his right hand cupped over the swell in his neck. Perhaps affected by Barry's musings, which hung thick in the room, he reached out to touch the smooth brown plastic of his radio. It was a caress that, in another life, might have graced the pale cheek of a woman, or in a parallel existence somewhere, was warming the hand of a grandchild at that same moment. Perhaps in these other universes, Sylvester, like Ross D. Siragusa, had applied himself. Could the impoverished son of immigrants really have had it so much better? Why was venturing outside the stifling womb of the building he'd been born in so difficult? How was he now, and how had he always been so incredibly alone? Sylvester did not realize that he wondered any of this, so deep below the must and dandruff surface did it transpire. His hesitation lasted only a second, and he ploddingly resumed the exploration through his toolbox for a knife. Nothing if not persistent, Barry tried again to call out to him. It's under the sandpaper, you idiot. No, the sandpaper, not the wrench. Are you blind, man? It's right there, on top of the box of brads. No, not there. Oh, forget it, Barry sighed. Sure, he had a list, but was his meaning not clear? Was his voice not familiar by now? How many times had he urged his lumbering host? Come on, let's take a bath. Oh, good. Wait, no, not this again. Or are you really going to leave that plate of stroganoff there? But the sink is merely three steps further on. Just wash the plate. Wash it. It seemed no use. Now, with the knife plainly in his sight, and he unable to help Sylvester accomplish something they both greatly desired, he was hopeless. He pictured his destiny. Before long, it would be Sylvester who perched on Barry's neck. So large, grotesque, and enduring would he become. In the basement, Jackass was reading his worn copy of Mystery on the Blue Train for at least the fifth time. Second floor's television was on and the phone was ringing. First floor was laughing loudly and their dog was barking. And in the attic, finally and miraculously, 
Beneath a worn scrap of sandpaper and on top of a box of brads, Sylvester stumbled upon his knife. No new blades. Barry held his breath in anticipation. This was finally it. Sylvester was going to do it. He slid the razor up into position and walked to a mirror that hung on the wall by his front window. Steadying himself in his slippers, he held Barry between the index finger and thumb of his left hand and prepared to lance him with the knife he held in his right. Barry felt a slight twinge of sadness that he had not been able to accomplish this bursting of his own volition, but was now filled with not only pus but hope and eagerness over what would be the next leg of his journey. He hoped that he would go passionately and loudly, like the fireworks he had heard but never seen, all summer, and in a fit of charity, that Sylvester would be satisfied at the amount and quality of the viscera he was about to release. As Sylvester cut into his boil, the slamming of the building's front door and a flash of movement in the front yard caught his eye. It was the last thing Barry saw before venturing full force into the bright light of boil heaven, and the first thing Sylvester had really looked at in a long while. Just past his meaty hand and utility blade and out the front window was the elderly, though remarkably robust Mrs. Wensleydale, second floor, hailing a cab with her overnight bag, her arm outstretched and blissful. Sylvester knew she was leaving and that she was not coming back.